Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, Savage Approach Personal Finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Ben Mutchler. Ben, are you ready to do this? I am. Excellent. Let's do this. Ben is a CFP. He is a managing director at Boston Research and Management. He's a frequent contributor to NBC News, Dow Jones, Kiplinger's, AARP, Bloomberg, and many other outlets. I'm excited to have you on. Ben, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Sure. I, uh, I guess my story starts, ironically, after an uh, administrative error my first year in college, a uh, small school named Susquehanna University. They put me in an upper-level economics course by accident, and the professor and I didn't realize it until it was too late to change. <laughs> so while I was struggling with my, uh, with my major of physical therapy, I was accelerate, uh, excelling on the business side. And Luckily, the school had a fantastic business program, the Sigma Weiss School of Business, uh, and I spent an internship at a multinational firm and quickly realized just too many ladders to climb and backs to stab in that world. So, <laughs> and the actual clients were really far away. Uh, so I opted to take a role as a financial advisor. Uh, I spent my first eight years kind of cutting my teeth on the sell side of the industry before finding a, uh, a perfect firm on the buy side that was willing to, uh, was looking to expand their services. And that's how I found Boston Research and Management. Nice. And just real quick. In just, terms of, yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. What's, what, what's the difference between the buy side and the sell side? Well, um, so when you look at the, the industry from the outside, um, the sell side makes up a large majority of, inve- of I'll call it financial uh, advisory firms. Um, but these companies are often manufacturers of products and, and uh, distributors of those products. So um, they have an agenda, which is move product, uh, okay. and they're selling something versus the buy side. And they're sitting on the other side of the table saying, we don't have anything to sell. We don't have a book or an inventory. We're just buying investments from these various companies or you know, just on the market as a whole. Got it. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. So what kind and of client- background from our firm? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Back, our, our firm background, we're, uh, we were founded about 28 years ago. I've been here for 13. We're a fee-only fiduciary firm before it was kind of in vogue to do so. And we began as just a team of professional investors entirely focused on the process of researching and identifying stocks and bonds for our clients. And we've since evolved into a holistic wealth management firm coordinating uh, our clients' tax strategy, uh, state planning, financial projections, but still maintaining that direct management over their, uh, their investment assets. So we're entirely independent, and that affords us a luxury of being completely uh, free of a parent company's kind of agenda or profit motives. Um, we operate just as a big team with each member kind of possessing a different area of expertise. Um, ironically, as the time has marched on, um, the business of, of wealth management firms has changed and we found ourselves one of the last parties standing a little bit of a vacuum for wealthier families as a lot of firms have morphed to become just mutual funds and that tends to push the clients further away. They've become asset allocators or what's been more popular, at least in New England, is increasing the, uh, the minimum assets to a pretty substantial, we're seeing 10 to $25 million minimums. Uh, so that's that's quite hefty for a lot of families. Yeah, no kidding. All right, so 
you probably told me, but what 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 are the ideal types of clients for you? Um, we're generally working with uh, a lot of first or second generational wealth, uh, and a lot of that comes from business owners and then their kids. Uh, clients often find us after being frustrated, bouncing around from one broker dealer to another. Um, and while we manage a couple endowments, we, we generally prefer to work with families as opposed to pensions. Um, those are entirely different methodologies and humans have a, a fiscal needs over a finite period of time and pension funds arguably have infinite holding periods so they can afford a lot lower levels of liquidity than a family looking to retire or send kids to college in a couple of years. So we work to customize investment strategies that work for each particular relationship rather than subscribing to an overarching model and trying to be everything for everybody. Got it. So can you go a little deeper into customizing investment strategies? Yeah, sure. Um, So that process generally starts with identifying the proper, we'll call it strategic allocation. Uh, And we generally define that as an equity range. So for example, 45 to 65% equity exposure. Uh, We'll then elect where we are within that range for a client based on macroeconomic and and current market inputs. It's not static. To determine the range, we're generally looking at uh, income and liquidity needs, time horizon, the tax status, and also the clients, we'll call it, quote, sleep at night capability during volatile markets. Mm -hmm. Um, We're typically doing quite a bit of work on their financial projections as well and their growth needs to make sure we're not taking on more volatility or more risk than necessary. Got it. I think that that's such an important thing to, uh, and that's something I hope people who are listening really, really understand is that just because um, you're 35 years old or 55 and you know, rules of thumb say that here's how you should be investing does not mean that that's the appropriate way for you to be investing, right? Because it could mean that you're not able to sleep or you're just not comfortable with it or you may, maybe you're interested in being way more aggressive. So I think to your point of, of customizing an investment strategy for an individual person or family is such an important thing. That's, that's super true. And I, I think a lot of folks just find themselves backed into an allocation that uh, and then telling themselves, I know I just need to be a long term investor, mm-hmm. but not knowing how you're going to react or even worse, knowing that you are going to react poorly um, in a period of financial duress uh, really can erode capital over time. And you'd probably be better off just not putting yourself into a situation where you feel forced to make a bad decision. Yeah, right. Would you say that you have an overall investment strategy or style rather? Uh, yeah, I would. We're we're classic value investors at our core. So most of our work is done on the valuation side. Uh, we're looking for disconnects between intrinsic value and what the market is implying. So we're not recreating the wheel over here. You know, however, fewer and fewer firms focus on this, uh, on, on we'll call it the business behind the ticker symbols. Uh, a lot of folks are opting for speculation of future profits and, and future opportunity. We look at risk a little differently from most investors and we outsource very little of the portfolio to third party managers. So this helps to reduce the fees, which is again, is essential to wealth building and compounding values as accounts grow. 
got it. The business behind the ticker symbol. That uh, I've never heard that before. That, that that certainly makes sense. So, can you just define that a little bit, or differently, perhaps? Uh, yeah, certainly. So that kind of goes on to the process of our equity component. So, um, our equity discipline is kind of simple. We want to buy superior businesses at attractive prices and not to oversimplify this. Uh, but if your cousin asks to borrow or invest, uh, you know, $10,000 in his business, what's your first question? I'd be curious what the, uh, what, what kind of business he'd want to be starting. <laughs> Exactly. I, 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 I laughed because I was just thinking about my cousins. So, <laughs> everybody has a story to tell. Yet, so many investors never ask that question, and they ask, "Oh, what did prior investors get?" Uh, and what I mean by that is they they look at the stock price, right? Oh, I want to buy the stock. Well, what has it done? That's irrelevant to what it might do in the future, uh, because at the end of the day, it's a business. And what are we buying when we're buying a stock? We're just buying the 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 future revenue of that company that's that's it so if a company is never expected to make revenue they would have zero value in in a, in a simple way that's why nonprofits don't have stocks because there's nothing to put, put a value on um and so what a lot of folks find themselves doing is speculating that in the future there will be profits that will somehow get returned to them and that's why we're dealing with a lot of companies that um that often drive themselves into bubble territory where the stock price gets too high and the, the profits are too far in the future. Got it. So I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. There's a reason that, that the primary reason that nonprofits do not issue stock is because there is no profit and there will never be a profit just, just, just by nature of that. So when you say get driven into bubble territory, can you go a little deeper into that? Well, I think a lot of what, drives the the way we look at the market is is looking at it through the lens of valuation um, and we need to be able to apply a value to a company and when profits or expectations get too disconnected uh, from from stock price you you end up with a position that becomes irrelevant or uh, to, to, to the current market value. And what I mean by that is something just goes up too much and we're, we're expecting something to happen. And maybe if that doesn't happen, the price just goes down substantially. And so we'd much rather say, let's not speculate on, on an event happening, but let's try to place a value on something that we have a tremendous amount of certainty around. What do we have a lot of certainty around? Well, generally we can we can find a lot of certainty around a company's revenues and their ability to grow those revenues. Um, and we're not particularly speculating on a new product or a new car or a new model or a new technology to drive that growth. Got it. I think that that makes sense. Okay. So that really is really digging in and understanding the business behind the ticker and really getting a good understanding of it's not just because the stock is, is going up, 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 because um, that could be a rational exuberance or who, who, who knows, a million different variables. But it's not necessarily uh, the fundamentals that you look at when you're evaluating what companies that you should be holding for your clients. That's right. We, we generally find our equity positions through one of three processes. And the first is we want to identify tremendous business models. And so we look for companies that have 
for example, very high barriers to entry or patent protection, strong brand awareness. And these are essentially companies with big moats around their business. Mm-hmm. That calls down a universe of about 5,000 stocks, to maybe one or 200 companies who have, we'll call it business models that we admire. Hmm. Uh, generally, these are large companies typically based in the U.S. Um, so from there, we can start to apply our stringent financial analysis, looking at areas like profitability and earnings growth, and balance sheets, free cash flow, et cetera. So for the companies that make it past those gauntlets, we'll launch very deep research into their businesses and eventually get, get ourselves to a place where we can apply a valuation on them. And if that valuation is substantially different from what the market is implying, we'll start to consider them for inclusion to the portfolio. So it's a, it's a pretty long process. Got it. I have to the imagine. The second way, yeah, the, 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 the second way we identify stocks is to just take those same stringent financial requirements and apply them to the universe of stocks. And technology allows us to do that now. And from time to time, they'll come back uh, with a company that we didn't know existed. You know, often a small uh, infrastructure firm that's just not on anybody's radar screen. And we'll launch research, and some of our best names have been uncovered that way. The last way is generally just thematically. So, for example, we might look at energy prices um, and launch research into that sector or water scarcity or battery power. Uh, This has uncovered a lot of interesting names for us as well, but we'll often end up indexing to access that area. Got it. So there are scenarios where you would use an index fund. Okay. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. And and I should start by saying, you know, we're, we're completely agnostic to product type. Um, You know, there is a role for index funds and for stocks and for bonds and for mutual funds and for managed products. Um, Our, our, our goal and our, our challenge is identifying the most efficient way to access a particular category of strategy. So we'll index generally through exchange-traded funds when we don't think we can uncover a competitive advantage. And a good example of this might be uh, like, like emerging markets. So it's important to have exposure there, but it's very difficult to outperform in that space. You know, I don't, we don't have an office in Brazil. We don't know the next uh, a grocery store chain to, to, to make it big. Right. Um, but it's, 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 also, we have to know international funds, if we went with more of a, an active strategy, they're just inherently a lot more expensive, um, and that provides another hurdle to, to us. So using an ETF allows us to adjust exposure side, and nowadays we can either, even uh, overweight or underweight a particular country or region. Uh, another way we'll, we'll use ETFs, uh, as, as alluded to earlier, is when equity research uncovers a, uh, an attractive sector, let's say, but the individual equity risk is really high in that arena. So it's frustrating to be in the right sector, but with the wrong stock. Um, and to reduce that risk, we'll, we'll use a sector ETF to gain kind of broad exposure. Um, good example of this would be uh, biotechs back in 14 and 15, and there was just a ton of mergers and acquisition in that space. And those companies were being acquired, were doing really, really well. But there was a huge delta between the ones that didn't see acquisitions. Um, and that's often not about business fundamentals or profitability. So picking the thematic performance is more important sometimes than uncovering the good management team and, and operating margins. Got it. 
you know, it's it, it's been fascinating um, just the way the technology has been changing really every aspect of our lives, but certainly investing. Um, and this is sort of a, a random question, but as more information becomes available through things like you just talked about how you can screen through hundreds, if not thousands of stocks, probably pretty quickly. How do you see artificial intelligence or perhaps that is already sort of our artificial intelligence changing the world of investment management? Well, I think we can we can take a lesson from what quantitative management has done. And I don't pretend to be an expert on AI, um, but it's just applying another level of uh, big data and, and insights to uh, to generally to price movement. Um, and where we've seen that business go is it's not saying let's identify really good businesses at really good prices. It's saying how can we make money 10 decimal points out knowing that we now trade a million times a second. Hmm. Um, I, I think one of the really interesting um, uh, stories was it, it became it became evident to large investment firms that were running quantitative um, mathematical analysis and algorithms that if they were physically a little closer to where the internet comes into America, which is like downtown New York City, right. um, they could see someone else's trade and get ahead of it by a microsecond and make, you know, a sixteenth of a cent um, and do that a million times um, uh, per per minute and and all of a sudden create a create an investable category. And and we look at again, that that falls into the category for us is price speculation. You're 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 manipulating the prices rather than saying what do I actually own? And um, the the uncertainty around that is tremendous. Uh, and so I, I think where we're looking at it, very very little can um, can replicate rolling up your sleeves and pouring over a balance sheet and trying to understand a company um, uh, under a microscope. Uh, where I think AI is going to provide some value is maybe on macroeconomic uh, 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 movements and and being able to compare how has this historic asset moved in in coordination with uh, maybe a change in interest rates or a change in inflation rates. Got it. Thank you. Well, Ben, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Uh, I would say we want to know what you own, you want to know why you own it, and you want to know what it's costing and how you're doing. Uh, You want a lot of transparency to your positions. If you don't know those answers, uh, find a way to get those answers. Lots of folks are paying more than they should. Um, and not doing as well as they should. Well, I think that that is great stuff. That definitely gets it. Come on. Come on. It's so true these days. Well, probably always has been. Just the more information that, that you can get and the more transparency that you have, I think it's better for everybody. So, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? We're online at bostonrm.com. Perfect. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Ben your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to bostonrm.com. Check out everything that they are working on. I'll list that in the notes of the show as well. Thank you again, Ben. Pleasure, Ben. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. 
before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing. Leave us a review and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on.